And good morning to everyone. Today we observe the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, why, why is it important that we, that we do so? Uh, why is it important that we observe uh, such a day? I'd like to begin this morning by suggesting four reasons why this, why this should be a, pri- a priority for us, uh, why this should uh, capture our attention. Now, the first reason is this. We should, we should observe the, the day of prayer for the persecuted church because it, it reminds us, it obviously reminds us to intercede for our fellow believers. Now, Paul, while languishing in a prison cell, wrote, to the church at Colossae, very simply, three words. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. And so he sought to impress upon his fellow believers, the Colossian believers, his, his perilous predicament, uh, the suffering in which he found himself. He acknowledges his own need for their intercession, their intercessory prayers on his behalf that the Lord might grant him spiritual fortitude. And so, too, we should remember our brothers and sisters in those parts of the world who suffer at times uh, terrible persecution. And we should intercede on their behalf, asking that our Lord, our Savior, would indeed strengthen them and grant them the necessary perseverance. Secondly, we need to observe the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, because it reminds us to, to serve our fellow believers. And so again, appealing to the words of Paul as he writes to Timothy, his second epistle, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Why? For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. And so as I languish here in jail, as I wait the final fall of the executioner's sword, there was one man, Onesiphorus, who sought me out in my prison cell, who ministered to me, who served me in my hour of need with complete disregard for his own well-being, a fellow believer in the Lord who was prepared to do all that he could do To serve his Lord by ministering to me. And that's another reason why we need to take this day seriously. And I'm so glad. I'm thrilled Rick went through that plan that we have here at Grace Community Community Church in a very simple fashion to prepare those care packages, let's call them, as as we enter into the Christmas season soon enough that we take the next month and we give out of that abundance that God has given us And we seek in this very simple yet meaningful fashion to minister to our brothers and Christians around the world, particularly the country of Pakistan, where they suffer for the faith. And so it reminds us to serve our fellow believers. Thirdly, as we observe the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church, it reminds us to pray for peace. Pray for peace. We forget to do just that living in a country in which we have enjoyed religious liberty since its inception. But Paul exhorts Timothy, his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 2, pray for kings. 
and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so we should pray for our our local leaders. We should pray for our state governor. We should pray for our president. We should pray for those in power, in authority over us. And here is a very specific prayer request that we should bring continually before the Lord. That we might continue to enjoy that peace and tranquility that we have enjoyed to this point. Never assuming that it will continue. Never assuming that it is a God-given right. Never assuming that it is a norm. But thanking God for this great gift. Reminding ourselves of this tremendous privilege and this tremendous advantage that God has placed at our feet where we in this land can pursue godliness unimpeded. I can pick up my Bible whenever I like and I can read it, I can proclaim it, I can go down to the town square and I could preach knowing that I could do so freely. But how, how often we forget. That is not the norm as we look around at the world. That is abnormal. And we should never presume that it will continue. But pray to the Lord that those in authority over us might have that discernment whereby religious freedom is protected. We might continue to enjoy peace and tranquility and we might continue to enjoy it not that we might pursue our pleasures headlong but that we might pursue godliness unimpeded. Fourthly, we should observe the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church because it reminds us to examine ourselves. It reminds us to take a good, long look at ourselves. Paul writes to the Philippian church, it has been granted to you Please pay attention to these words. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I Still have. So it serves as a wake-up call, does it not? Uh, John MacArthur writes, and rightly so, uh, much of the visible church seems to think Christians are supposed to be at play rather than at war. Most of the visible church seems to think that Christians are called to be at play rather than at war. We are in the midst of a war doesn't feel like it at times here in North America. And yet our brothers and sisters in places like Pakistan, Sudan, Iraq, China, they know of what I speak this morning. They know it firsthand. And how we need to be reminded of that. That in, day, in a day and age in which apathy runs rampant, that we would heighten this sort of war, wartime state of mind that we would truly engage ourselves in the conflict to which Christ has called us, engage ourselves in the suffering which he has granted us for his own name's sake. So why do we observe this day of prayer?
the persecuted church. We do so to intercede, to remind ourselves to intercede for our fellow believers. To remind us to serve as we are able, our fellow believers. To remind us to pray for peace in our own land. And to remind us to examine ourselves. Now, the persecution of God's people has a rich, a rich history. You go all the way back to the fall and all the way back to what God said as recorded by Moses in Genesis 3.15 as he spoke to the serpent, as he spoke to the devil himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, your offspring and her offspring. There God himself identifies two humanities. And these two humanities have existed ever since the fall. There is the offspring of the devil himself. There is the offspring of of the woman that is Christ. And so we have these two humanities, all those who are outside of Christ. And all those who are in Christ. And what will be the mark? What will characterize the relationship between these two seeds These two humanities, or what Augustine called these two cities, the city of man and the city of God, the mark will be downright hostility. And the hostility reaches a boiling point in the very next chapter, Genesis 4. What happens? Cain murders Abel. There we have it in living color. The seed of the serpent rearing its ugly head against the seed of the woman, the city of God. And Cain murders Abel out of spite. Why? Because Abel reminds him of his own sinfulness. Abel was a righteous man in God's sight. And, and Cain's animosity spills over and causes him to take the life of his own brother. And we tiptoe through the Old Testament and we see this time and time again, don't we? We see this perpetual struggle. We see that Abraham is persecuted. We discover that Gideon is persecuted. Samuel is persecuted. David is persecuted. This hatred continually rearing its ugly head as the people of God suffer this persecution at the hands of the seed of the serpent. So the author of the epistle to the Hebrews can write, As he reflects on the Old Testament era, some were tortured, he says, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. That's a description of the entire Old Testament era. And you know as well as I do that the persecution continues right at the inception of the church there on the day of Pentecost. And soon after the day of Pentecost, as we enter into the the historical record In the book of Acts, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we begin to see that the Jews persecute the early church. 
And that persecution is severe. It leads to the death of James, the martyrdom of Stephen and, and others, others, other leaders in, in, the, in the opening decades, the opening years of the early church. And it builds and it culminates. And we have an interesting record there in Acts chapter 18 as Paul is ministering in the city of Corinth. The Jews work themselves up into such a frenzy that they bring Paul before and his followers and the new converts before the Roman proconsul, a man by the name of Gallio, the proconsul for the entire Roman province of Achaia. And they bring Paul and these converts before this Roman and they accuse Paul of rebellion and all sorts of things uh, against the, the Jewish religion. And what is most interesting is Galileo's response. He won't hear anything of it. He won't touch this debate with a ten-foot pole. He basically rebukes the Jews, get out of my sight. I am not the least bit interested in these matters pertaining to Judaism. And he literally chases them out of his presence. You see, the persecution for the first two, three decades there in the history of the early church was strictly at the hand of the Jews. The Romans not the least bit interested. But as time went on, all of that began to change. And we know that soon after the close of the historical record, the book of Acts, we have the martyrdom of Paul, the martyrdom of Peter in Rome during the reign of Nero. And we see that the church, Christians, as they begin to separate themselves from Judaism, as they begin to make a name for themselves, these followers of Christus, they begin to attract the attention of the Roman eye. Why? Because the Romans are concerned about the attitude so prevalent among these Christians. It appears from their vantage point, the Roman vantage point, that these Christians are actually haters of humanity. How could a Christian possibly be a hater of humanity? Well, for the Roman, in the Roman mindset, uh, Rome was at the center of the world. Well, who kept and preserved God at the center of the world? Uh, Rome at the center of the world? The gods. And so the Romans had their, their plethora of gods. And they believed it was these gods who kept Rome, the empire, at the center of the known world. Therefore, anyone who would not engage in the public festivals and celebrations and ceremonies whereby sacrifices were offered to the god were viewed as haters of Rome, therefore as haters of humanity. Well, the Christians, they won't touch these public festivals with a ten-foot pole. They want no part in all of these ceremonies because of the the religious overtures and the religious significance. Well, things are starting to go bad for the Roman Empire. The gods, it appears, are beginning to turn their back on the Roman Empire. It has to be the Christians' fault. The Christians are are, are, they're, 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 they're stirring up the displeasure of the gods by not participating in these public feasts and festivals. Therefore, these these Christians must actually be haters of humanity. And so by the mid-60s A.D., we see this systemic persecution arise within the Roman Empire and, and, and the rise of this persecution of believers. And we can go back and we read the account by the Roman historian Tacitus as he talks about Nero, who, who, 
who pointed to the Christians as responsible for the burning of two-thirds of the city of Rome. And he made the Christians the scapegoat. And those Christians he took and he, and he sewed them up in animal skins and threw them to the lions in the amphitheater. Or he made them living torches to illuminate his decadent celebrations in the evening. And so there is this hostility, there is this animosity, and this systemic persecution. It, 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 it ebbs and flows for the next three centuries right into the reign of the Emperor Constantine. And finally, Christianity is legalized as a religion. And what happens the moment Christianity is legalized as a religion, it becomes a nest for all sorts of birds of prey and and succumbs to such syncretism and such false doctrine that Christianity gives rise to that aberration of the truth known as Christendom, the Roman Catholic Church. And it's the Roman Catholic Church that then actually becomes the origin of the persecution. Through the Middle Ages, the, the, the boot of the Roman Church is felt by the hands of the Waldensians and other evangelical reformed groups, the, the link between the early church and the Reformation. The Reformation transpires and the Roman Church goes after the reformers and the number of saints by the tens of thousands who are martyred across the continent of Europe for standing firm for the faith. The Reformation transpires. And we enter into the modern era. And we see the persecution continue in, in, in Roman Catholic countries, whether it's in so- southern Europe or in South America. We see the persecution in the last century in communist countries. We see it in Hindu countries such as India and Nepal. We see it in Islamic countries such as Pakistan and Sudan. The persecution continues right to this day. This animosity that exists between the city of man and the city of God. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ. And we see it in our own land if we care to look. If we care to look deeply into the prevailing situation within North America today, we see persecution beginning to rear its ugly head, not on a systemic level, but yes, becoming more and more prevalent. As a believer, you can expect persecution today. You can expect it from the secular humanists who views Christianity as the origin and mother of all evil and of all social ill and of all that plagues us as a society. And you can can expect to experience it from the nominal Christian, of which this country has but a few hundred thousands, if not millions of them, nominal Christians, who when faced with biblical orthodoxy, when, when, when faced with true zeal for piety, resent it. Why? Because it flies in the face of their own aberration of truth and monstrosity, which they perceive as Christianity. And they resent it when they are confronted with the real thing. Oh, you can expect it today, brothers and sisters. You can expect it from, among other sources, those two. The secular humanist and the nominal Christian as the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent continue in this conflict, and as this promise which God made right back there in Genesis 3.15 is repeatedly fulfilled before our very eyes, I will put enmity 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Ian Murray writes, in all centuries, in all centuries, a saving knowledge of God inevitably brings division. It opens to some a world of reality which remains closed to others. Let me repeat his words for you. In all centuries, the saving knowledge of God inevitably brings division. It opens to some a world of reality which remains closed to others. And the result is always persecution. And so this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so we declare God's word to the persecuted church this morning, our brothers and sisters. And we declare God's word to ourselves as we experience the world's hostility as we seek to live for Christ day in and day out. The title for this sermon, very simple, Rejoicing in Persecution. How is that possible as we think of brothers and sisters in Pakistan or in Sudan or other places, as we think of Christians closer to home, Christians who have an unsafe spouse from whom they they experience constant hostility concerning the faith or, or unsafe parents who are against the faith, the Christian faith. How is it possible to rejoice in the midst of persecution? We find the answer to that question in John chapter 16. Now, you know as well as I do that John 16 has a very significant context. The context begins in the previous chapter, chapter 15. And in the first half of chapter 15, the Lord Jesus exhorts us, exhorts his people right from verse 1, chapter 15, through to verse 17, to abide in him. John reminds us in his first epistle, whoever says, Whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so as we abide in Christ, abide in the vine, his character is produced in us. His purity and his holiness, his obedience to the Father's will, his self-denial, his diligence, in obeying the Father's will and doing the Father's work, his inoffensiveness in his conduct, certainly not in his words, his, his, his lowliness, his contentment, this Christ-like character is produced in us. That's the essence of what John is saying there in the first half of the 15th, of what Christ is saying in the first half of the 15th chapter. And then in the remainder of the chapter, verse 18 through to the end, He explains to us, he proclaims to us how we can expect the world to react to those who are Christ-like. In simple terms, he tells us, he warns us that the world will hate us. He gives three reasons. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's reason number one, the world hates us because it hates Christ. Reason number two, verse 19, if you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world 
hates you. It's because Christ has chosen us out of the world. We are different from the world. And he gives a third reason in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so the world will hate us. Why? Because it hates Christ. Because Christ has chosen us out of the world. And because it does not know the Father. And then as we enter into chapter 16, in the face of that persecution that will arise from Christ-likeness, Christ gives an encouraging word in the 16th chapter. And basically, He emphasizes four truths that should encourage our hearts. In the first instance, four truths that should encourage the disciples as they will experience such vehement opposition from their countrymen. And by implication, four truths that should encourage us as we experience the world's hostility. So in this chapter, Christ tells us, firstly, that we have a helper, a helper. And he speaks of this helper in the first 15 verses. And he describes this helper, the Holy Spirit, as he stands in three distinct relationships. He tells us firstly in verse 7 about this helper's relationship with the Lord, with himself. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This wonderful promise that Christ in heaven is far greater than Christ on earth. Because the exalted Christ has sent forth this helper, this Holy Spirit, to indwell His people, making them one with Him. And then in verse 8, He describes the relationship between the helper and the world. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then in verse 13, He describes the relationship between the helper And the believer, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. That is the first encouraging word. We have a helper. Now we pick up Christ's words in verse 16 right through to the end of the chapter, verse 33, and here he gives the three remaining truths to encourage us. Three truths whereby we may rejoice in persecution. We have a Savior. We have a Mediator. And we have a Conqueror. Take note of these three as I read for us publicly God's Word, beginning in verse 16. A little while... And you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? 
what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Three truths, three truths. We're clear on number one. In the first 15 verses, we have a helper. Three additional truths. We have a savior. In verses 16 through 22, we have a mediator. Verses 23 through 28. And we have a conqueror or an overcomer in verses 29 through 33. Let's look at each briefly this morning, beginning with our Savior. Verses 16 through 22. Right in the midst of these verses, verse 21, the Lord Jesus gives an important analogy from from life, everyday experience. When a woman is giving birth, She has sorrow. And so a woman finds herself in labor. There is pain. There is the resultant grief or sorrow because her hour has come. But what happens when she gives birth? When she has delivered the baby, what happens to her sorrow? What happens to her pain, her anguish? She no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into The world and the Lord Jesus employs this analogy 
as he seeks to get across to his disciples that in a little while they will no longer see him. And then in a little while they will see him again. In a little while they will sorrow while the world rejoices. But then in another little while their sorrow will be turned to joy. The Lord Jesus is pointing firstly to his crucifixion. That in a little while they will no longer see him. The Son of Man will be lifted up. The Son of Man will be placed in the tomb. The Son of Man will be buried. The sorrow, the pain, the anguish as they see Christ mistreated, as they see Christ beaten, as they see Christ crucified while the world rejoices. Oh, but in another little while, your sorrow will be turned to joy. And that is the resurrection. In a little while, you will no longer see me. Grief, sorrow. And in another little while, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And so that woman is in labor. And there is a sorrow as she undergoes the pains of labor. But it passes. And the moment that infant is born, she no longer remembers the pain and the suffering because she is now gripped with that baby, that infant, that life that she now has in her hands and holds in her arms. And that is what Christ is seeking to get across to his disciples. Yes, grief first. Yes, unspeakable anguish first. Yes, in a little while I'm gone. Confusion will set in. Perplexity and anxiety. But just another little while, the resurrection, and you will see me, and your sorrow will be turned to joy. We have, brothers and sisters, a Savior. We have in our Savior the cause of boundless joy. Because we have in our Savior a resurrection. We serve a risen Savior, a resurrection testifying to the Father's acceptance of what His Son suffered at Calvary's cross. How can I be certain God forgives my sins? How can I be absolutely certain that God will never turn me away or forsake me? How can I be absolutely certain that God isn't going to hold me accountable and will not judge me? I have this certainty. I have this confidence. I have this Hope, because at the time of the resurrection, the father declared his acceptance, his approval of his son's sacrifice on my behalf. And as I contemplate that, no matter what state of life I find myself in, prosperity or adversity, peace or persecution, as I contemplate the resurrection of Christ and what it means for my salvation, All sorrow is turned to joy. So the hymn writer pens, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. That God's wrath has been atoned 
for my sin. That as I read a text, such as what Paul declares in Romans 2, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. As I hear those terrible words, I know it has nothing to do with me. Because God's wrath, as far as I'm concerns me, has been turned away. It has been appeased by the blood of Christ. And Father, Father has testified to his satisfaction in Christ's sacrifice by raising him from the dead. Now, those words of Paul in Romans 2.5, they are nothing short of terrible. That sinners are storing up for themselves wrath. Reserved for the day of judgment. Storing up. It means gradual accumulation. Gradual accumulation. It evokes the imagery of a dam, doesn't it? And there you see this strong and mighty dam. And the rain falls. And the water builds. And the rain continues to fall. And the water builds and it falls and it builds and falls and builds. And finally the water comes rushing over the dam or the dam completely breaks under the weight of that water and the waters come rushing forth, destroying everything in its path. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh, but I rejoice this morning. My joy is uncontainable this morning. As I remember that I have a Savior. I have a Savior who has paid the penalty for my sin. And I have a Savior who has satisfied and offended God. And I have a Savior who has borne God's wrath in His body at Calvary's cross. And there is full atonement. For me. And secondly, we see in verses 23 through 28 that we have a mediator. A mediator who basically does two things. First of all, in this mediator, Christ tells us, the mediator being him, we have the Father's attention. Look at what he says in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Why? Because Christ had not yet been exalted. But in that day, you will ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And so we now have in Christ this mediator between God and us, whereby we have the Father's attention. And we can bring our prayers to the Father through Christ. But it doesn't stop there. There's more in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And the exalted Christ sends the Holy Spirit who guides the church into all truth. And so just as in Christ our mediator we speak to the Father, so too in Christ our mediator the Father speaks to us through the Spirit of truth who speaks in the word of truth. And all of this is possible because of the God-man Christ Jesus who stands between God 
and us. You go right back to Genesis 3. We've already gone there this morning, but go all the way back in your mind's eye. And remember the fall. And remember what God did subsequent to the fall when he placed the cherubim. And he placed the flaming sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, guarding the way back to the Tree of Life. And in that cherubim and the flaming sword, we have this awful reminder of the holiness of God. This awful reminder of this separation and alienation that now exists between man, a sinner, and a holy God. And that there is no way back to God. That anyone who dares approach God meets with the cherubim, the garter of God's holiness, meets with the flaming sword, certain death and destruction. And yet as we fast forward in the Old Testament, we come to the cherubim again, do we not? In this instance, it has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember the mercy seat? What were there on top of the mercy seat with their wings spread out? The cherubim. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest brought that blood and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat before the cherubim. And it is through the shedding of blood that this threat of the holiness of God and the wrath of God is removed. The flaming sword removed. And through this one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have this access through one spirit into the very presence of God. And through Christ, we speak to the Father. And what's even more admirable than that is He actually hears us. And through Christ, the Father speaks to us in His Holy Word, which He has entrusted to us. This this treasure, this deposit that He has given to us, whereby the Spirit of God speaks to us. And in addition to our mediator, we have thirdly a conqueror. Verses 29 through 33. The disciples seem to get it. Verse 29. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I think a touch of irony here in verse 31. I'm not sure they they really do get it yet. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Well, here's what's going to happen. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And now he returns to his central theme. I have said these things. What things? Going all the way back to verse 18 of chapter 15, where he introduces this subject of the world's hostility and persecution. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He speaks of it in a definitive manner, doesn't he? He speaks of his overcoming the world as a done deal. It is a done deal in the decrees of God. He is going to the cross. And there at the cross, he will break the power of sin. He will break the power of death. He will break the power of the prince of the world himself. Because the power of the devil is death. The power of death is sin. And when Christ takes my sin upon himself, 
and pays the penalty for my sin. The devil's power is broken. The world's grip is undone. And I now have a conqueror. I now have an overcomer. I have a resurrected, glorified, exalted Savior who now reigns in the hearts of His people, who now reigns over His church, who now reigns over his nation, the nations and will do so as His Father pledges until His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. He is an overcomer. And we see the evidence of that throughout history, don't we? Go all the way back again to the book of Acts. Go all the way back to that persecution that the early church experienced at the hand of the Jews. Terrible. What was the result? Oh, the gospel was spread, was it not? Christians were forced out of Jerusalem, forced out of Israel, into the world. And so through that persecution, the gospel was taken further afield. You fast forward now to the time of the Roman Empire and the terrible persecution instigated at times by the Roman emperor himself or Roman governors. What was the result? The gospel continued to spread so that Tertullian, by the third century, could write, Christians are scattered over the whole world. The Roman Empire. We are of yesterday, but born of yesterday. Yet we have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. That's Tertullian writing, but a little over 200 years after the inception of the church. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. We have a conqueror, brothers and sisters a resurrected and glorified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It continues through the Middle Ages. As the boot of Roman Catholicism is felt, the gospel will not be suppressed. It blossoms at the time of the Reformation, spreads across Europe like wildfire, is then transported all the way to North America. And out of that, what issues forth the greatest missionary movement in the history of the church? Take a look at recent history in communist countries, even a country like China. You look at what's going on in some Muslim countries and Hindu countries. There we see our overcomer ruling over his people, ruling over the nations of the earth, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet, going forth in power by the Holy Spirit, calling his people to himself. That's why we rejoice, even in the face of persecution. We have a Savior. And nothing can take that from us. We have a mediator through whom we speak to God. And God speaks to us. And we have a conqueror whose victory, final victory, is most sure. Look at what Christ says about joy in these verses just quickly. Back into chapter 15, four marks of this joy, rejoicing in persecution. Chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Whose joy are we talking about this morning? It's Christ. He is the author of it, 
and he is the subject of it. Look secondly now in chapter 16, verse 20. Another characteristic of this joy. Truly, truly, says Christ, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What is initially the source of their sorrow? The cross. And yet it is the cross, the Father's approval testified in the resurrection that actually becomes their greatest source of joy. The significance of what Christ accomplished at Calvary's cross. And so we see that this joy is rooted in Golgotha. Thirdly, we see that this joy is permanent. Verse 22. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The joy that the world has to offer can be taken from us, can't it? Why? Because the world's joy is rooted in things. And the moment we lose our things is the moment we lose our joy. But this is not the world's joy of which Christ speaks. It is his joy. It is a joy that flows from him. It is a joy rooted in Calvary's cross. Therefore, it is a joy that cannot be taken from us. It is permanent. And now notice the fourth characteristic, verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It is a full joy. Why? Because the object of this joy is infinite. And because the object of this joy is infinite, our joy is full, superabounding. Because the object abounds in such loveliness and beauty that our joy cannot be contained. And reflecting on this, John Flavel writes, Bring the soul, bring the soul to a reconciled God in Christ, to the covenant of grace and the sweet promises of the gospel. Set before it the joys, comforts, and earnests of the Spirit. And if it is a sanctified, renewed soul, it can make a rich feast upon thee. I trust we can make a rich feast upon these truths this morning. This is what Christ extends to his persecuted church, his suffering church this day. This is what Christ extends to us in the midst of tribulation, having promised us that in this world we will have tribulation. We have a helper. We have a savior. We have a mediator. And we have a conqueror. One preacher has penned, let me conclude, with this, just by way of exhortation to fix our gaze on Christ He says, when a certain businessman was in the wool business, he once spent an evening with a shepherd on the Texas prairie. During the night, the long wail of coyotes pierced the air. The shepherd's dogs growled and peered into the darkness. The sheep, which had been sleeping, lumbered to their feet, alarmed, bleating pitifully. The shepherd tossed more logs on the fire. 
and the flames shot up. In the glow, he looked out and saw thousands of little lights. He realized those were reflections of the fire in the eyes of the sheep. In the midst of danger, he observed, the sheep were not looking out into the darkness, but were keeping their eyes set in the direction of their safety, looking toward the shepherd. I couldn't help but think of Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. How can we possibly rejoice in persecution? How can a poor suffering Christian in Pakistan possibly rejoice? How can someone languishing in a prison cell in China possibly rejoice? How can someone who's experiencing oppression and uh, the loss of goods, the loss of family, loss of, of loved ones possibly rejoice? We have a helper. We have a Savior, we have a mediator, and we have an overcomer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, may the name of Christ be magnified in us this day. May we highly esteem him above all else. May we greatly prize him above all that this world has to offer. May we truly appreciate his wondrous beauty and take to heart his complete work on our behalf. And in this may we find our delight, in this may we find our joy, in this may we find our anchor in the difficult times and in the valleys. And dare we say in the moments in which we experience this world's opposition and hatred. We do again intercede on our brother's and sisters' behalf, as they are found throughout this world this day, many living and experiencing deplorable conditions and situations and hostility and animosity. And we pray that you would strengthen their faith and cause them to gaze upon Christ. And in Christ may they see the lover of their souls, the author and perfecter of their faith. It is his name we do pray. Amen.